Good morning. There we go. How you doing? How the rest of you? <laughs> Need some energy, man. I'm a little tired this morning. Give me something. Everybody good? Okay, we ready? Okay, Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible, you can turn it on or open it up. Uh, Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. We are in a sermon series. We're studying the life of the Apostle Paul, and I love this sermon series for a lot of reasons. One of them is, as you study Paul's life, he does incredible things, and it can be overwhelming. Like I oftentimes considered Paul to have an S on his chest and a cape blowing in the wind. He was a super Christian, and he would do things no one else could do, and, and there are some things he did that we won't be doing. But overall, what I've learned from studying his life, and, and this time around studying it yet again and reading these passages, is that no, when, when Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me, follow me, uh, follow my example, as I follow the example of Jesus, he meant it. And there are so many truths we can learn from him um, as we begin to dive into his life about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now here at New Hope, you hear this phrase all the time. We say, hey, we want to be disciples, making disciples. And we, we saw that uh, kind of take place this last Monday night when Matt Harden asked me to come up here and meet him and talk to him about uh, somebody in his group. Now, what you need to know about Matt and Amanda is they're very intentional right now. They're living on mission. And so they had they'd been in a discipleship group, but asked that group to send them to another to start a new discipleship group with people that hadn't been at New Hope for very long. And so they launched this new group. And out of that group, we're sitting there Monday night with one of the people, and Matt had been discipling. And, and right there on the spot, right out of the book of Acts, uh, he says, hey, about right, right now, and Matt got to baptize him. It was awesome. You see, that's the goal. We, we want to be disciples who make disciples. We want to follow Jesus. Disciple simply means learner. I want to learn the ways of Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus to the best of my ability and help other people do the same. Many people feel, as they're following Jesus, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how, what do I have to offer? That? And here's the encouragement. You don't have to have it all figured out. That's what I learned from Paul. You don't have to have everything figured out to follow Jesus and help other people follow him. You just got to be one step in front of the person behind you. And anybody can do that if you're in Christ. You can lead other people. And we're going to learn one more thing we can do from Acts chapter 17 today. I'm excited to continue this journey through Paul's life, but this question comes up from this passage, and I want to ask the question at the front end. And, and Herod, uh, at the, at the, Herod uh, Pontius Pilate at, at the... Uh, uh, trial of Jesus asked it well when he said, hey, what, what is truth? This concept of truth, what is it? What is true? And if you're like me, you've battled that question through seasons in your life, or maybe you're not. Maybe you just have, it, you have the S and the cape. I don't know. But for me, I've gone through seasons where I've battled this, this question. Man, truth, what is truth? And I've been convicted, and I come back to this truth. And you've heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. I believe that to be true. I believe that if we pursue truth, and we go after it. We want to learn. All truth will ultimately, if we're honest and we have integrity with it, will ultimately lead us to the creator of truth being God. Now, but we wrestle with it. We go back and forth with it. And I wrestle with truth uh, for a lot of different reasons. And uh, the, one of the reasons is we live in a very skeptical world. Amen? Right? And you want to live for truth and you want to have convictions. This world doesn't look, our culture, the world we live in right today, if we're just being really honest about it, and I'm not pointing fingers and I'm not getting angry about it, but if you just look at the world we live in, it's hard to stand for truth in a world that is so skeptical and so accusatory about the truth that we want to stand for and the convictions that we have. Many people look at it and say, the reason you can't have truth is because nobody can know the truth. 
And one of the illustrations that is very popular to use, I want to make very clear that this illustration is intended for illustration purposes only. This is not to take a, a, a dig at anybody. It's just an illustration. But the illustration is used that you would to put three blind men in a room with an elephant who had never seen an elephant or been around an elephant. And you're asking these men to describe now, only having a portion of the elephant exposed to them, what, does the elef- what is an elephant? You have to write a description of an elephant now. And so these three blind men, they go, and the first guy says, hey, it's long and it's smooth, and I can wrap my arms around it as he's grabbing onto the trunk. So an elephant is long and smooth, and I can wrap my arms all the way around him, and that's not necessarily the full truth. And then the other one says, that can't be true because I can't get my arms all the way around it, and it's strong and immovable, and I can't... Uh, so, so what's true about an elephant, the truth about elephants is that, hey, they're long and strong as he's grabbing onto the leg. And the third guy says, no, that's not true about ele- what elephants are. They're big, and I can't put my arms all the way around them, and they're immovable as he's pushing on the side of the elephant. And this illustration is used to say, hey, that's the same that's true with truth in general and religion in particular. When it comes to religion, no religion can have the corner on truth. Every religion has some truth, but no one can have the truth. And they'll say Muslims have uh, a little bit of truth, and Hindus have a little bit of truth, and Buddhists have a little bit of truth, and Christians have a little bit of truth. But the one thing that any of those religions, or you might even input philosophies in general, can never do, the big no-no, the big thing that you can't do at all, is to say that you're the only one with truth, that you exclusively have access to truth. You can't do that because... Nobody has exclusive access to truth, but here's what happens when you flesh that out. The analogy fails. The whole philosophy behind that fails, and here's how. I love how one author summarizes it. He says, how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have superior, comprehensive knowledge of the spiritual reality that you just claim that no other religion can have? You see, let me say it this way. Claiming that nobody can have absolute truth is in and of itself an absolute truth claim. The reason the analogy fails is because it's told from the perspective of somebody who can see the whole elephant. The the, the person who knows that it's an elephant in the room to begin with and knows everything there is to know about elephants can then look and say, you know, you're not allowed to have all of the truth, only a part of the truth. It fails because they see the whole thing. You can't say there's no absolute truth without in and of that own statement, that own belief system saying there's an absolute truth, and the absolute truth is that no one has absolute truth. You see how it fails. If you didn't follow me, watch it later on the website. (laughs) But as a result, what happens is a lot of people do one of two things. They begin to water down the truth because the skeptical world we live in puts pressure on them and says, you can't have all the truth. And you're like, I don't want to battle, I want to fight, I'll just water down the truth. The danger in that, if you're a Christian, is that Jesus becomes an idea or a philosophy, but he doesn't, he's not Lord. He's not the Lord of your life where everything he commands you to do, you're called to do and you live out. He can't be Lord if he's just an idea or a philosophy. The other thing is what a lot of Christians do is we passively avoid the truth. We find ourselves in environments where there's pressure and we just say, forget it, I'm not even going to engage. I'm just, they don't need to know I'm a Christian. My Christianity is all about me anyway. It's just me and Jesus. And so we passively avoid engaging with the truth. And both times, we're fearful that we're going to be labeled arrogant or prideful or a bigot. And we're scared of the culture we live in when decisions are made that really make it difficult to stand firm on the truth of the gospel and what Jesus says. The world we live in begins to culturally pressure us to conform or at least to stay quiet. And don't let anybody else know that that's what you believe. 
See, I don't even think it's actually having truth that becomes the problem. All religions claim to have truth. The big problem comes in what we do with the truth. The big problem comes is that we live in a skeptical world. The world that we live in is very skeptical of truth in general. It's a very difficult world to live in. And they don't like when you make truth claims. And we get scared and we get fearful and we begin to push back and we, we begin to ignore or we begin to uh, respond with rage and anger. You see, I think there's really, when it comes to Christianity and truth, there's really two things that happen. Honestly, I'm going to be real honest with you. I mean, this drives me crazy, too. It drives me crazy. And you're going to think, well, coming from your perspective, you went through ministry. No, I'm just saying in general, even if I wasn't a Christian, people that say they have a truth and respond this way would drive me nuts. I don't know if it drives you nuts, but you've got people that err way on the side of grace, so much so that they water down the truth. And Jesus becomes this fluffy, fun, warm guy that just accepts everybody. And if the culture doesn't like something, it's cool because Jesus can adapt and he changes. And, and, and there's no lordship. There's no, uh, there's no Jesus being Lord and Savior. It's just all grace, all grace, all grace and no truth. But here's the thing. Grace without truth doesn't save anybody. Doesn't save anybody. But, but you got the flip side of that and you swing the pendulum over here and you got people that err on the side of truth and they have no grace. And maybe you've encountered these type of Christians that, man, they're all about truth, all about doctrine, all about being right at the expense of people. And so they're like driving a giant dump truck and they're ready to dump their truth on top of you. And if you get in my way, you better watch out because you'll be a casualty of my culture war. And they go crazy pursuing the truth. And it drives me insane because it may, you've seen these people, the bullhorn guy. He stands with a bullhorn on the street corner and he starts, turn or burn. And I'm like, oh, thank you for making it harder for me. To engage somebody with the truth. of the, You just made it harder. Thank you. Awesome. I just want to smash the bullhorn, but then I'm doing what he did. Ah, what do I do? I, you just try to engage people through it all. But the, the, you have the, the pendulum swings both ways, but when you look at the gospel, here's the thing that should bring you comfort. The gospel. When I say gospel, I mean the good news that Jesus did for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves, conquered death, resurrected from the dead, and reunited us with our Heavenly Father, thus putting us on a mission to partner with him in saving the world good news. Really good news. The good news of Jesus has never shied away from a skeptical culture. Jesus has never shied away from skeptics. Skeptics, truth seekers, have always been welcome when it comes to Christianity. And here's the deal. The gospel has prevailed over time and culture and skepticism. It is good news, and it's wonderfully good news. And the gospel tells us this. When we engage a skeptical culture, we must do so with a balance of truth and grace. Illustrate for you this way. A rubber band, absolutely useless if it sits like this, right? What good is that? See, the same thing is with truth. If truth just errs on the side of truth all by itself and we're just pushing for truth and we're just becoming real mean and pushy with it, it's kind of useless. But on the flip side, if we go over to grace and grace just sits over here and we're just, we just want to have grace, no truth, don't worry about, hey, don't talk about truth, just be grace, just be loving, just be grace. See, the usefulness of the rubber band, much like the usefulness of Christian truth, comes with tension. A, a balance, a mixture of both truth and grace coming together to engage a skeptical world. The world is not interested. People who are truly seeking truth are not interested in your passive attempts at watering it down. On the same time, those people that are seeking but they're not sure what they're looking for are not interested in being bullied. It's truth and it's grace. And this is the culture that the Apostle Paul is about to walk into in Acts chapter 17. 
David did an excellent job, a wonderful job. If you didn't hear the sermon, please go and listen to it. In Acts chapter 16, and the big idea of the sermon last week was God can work anywhere. And anywhere happened to be a town called Philippi, where Paul and Silas find themselves, and they plant a church, and the work of that church gets going. And it's, it's going really well. But then in Acts chapter 16, hear me, this is the, Paul goes up against an opposition. The opposition is physical, and it's spiritual, and it's emotional. The physical opposition is this. When he does some work there uh, in that community, people get offended by it. They end up putting him under trial. They end up beating him, and they end up throwing him in jail unjustly. He didn't do anything to deserve that. That's physical opposition, where Paul's faced with this opportunity to say, is the gospel so true? Is the truth of the gospel, do I believe it so much? Has it transformed my life so much that I'm willing to face this physical opposition because I cannot waver from this truth? And sure enough, he was because that's how true the gospel was for him. He endures the physical opposition. He's thrown into this prison. In the prison, he now encounters some emotional opposition of God. What are we going to do sitting in a dungeon in a prison? And he overcomes that by returning to the truth of, yeah, you guessed it, the good news of Jesus by singing songs. And he and Silas are singing these songs, overcoming their emotional opposition in the middle of that prison. And then an earthquake comes and It opens up the prison where they could run and they could flee, if you remember from last week. And now they're up against some spiritual opposition because now Paul is faced, do I run or do I share the truth of Jesus with the man who was partially responsible for beating me and throwing me in this prison to begin with? And now I have to forgive him in an effort to then help him understand that he is forgiven not just by me, but by his heavenly father. That's spiritual opposition. That's a difficult thing to overcome. And that's where Paul finds himself in Acts chapter 16. And the gospel prevails as It always does when there's a mixture of truth and grace. And that man and his entire family were baptized into Christ at the midnight hour. The gospel prevails. The good news always wins with a mixture of truth and grace. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was up against emotional and physical and spiritual opposition. And now in Acts chapter 17, Paul's going to be up against intellectual opposition where he has a skeptical world that asks questions and wonders, and they're pursuing intellectual elitism. And in the midst of that, he has to come and say, can the gospel, much like it overcame the spiritual, emotional, and physical opposition, overcome intellectual opposition? And this is where we're going to pick up our story in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for others to arrive. You understand Paul had just been, uh, he went to Thessalonica and Berea. And, and when he's in these places, <laughs> the people in Thessalonica, they wanted to murder him. I don't know if you've ever been pursued because someone actually physically wanted to murder you. I'm assuming it's pretty difficult. I hope I never have to experience that. But that stress, that amount of stress is put on Paul. He flees. Wherever he arrives, though, Paul, here's Paul's view of discipleship. I'm going to include Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. There's nothing I'm going to not include him in. And so as he pers- leaves Thessalonica, so he doesn't get murdered, good reason to go, I get, you know, they say, no, you can't run from us, and they pursue him, and they're going to murder him there. Well, then they're like, no, you got to go. And so they send him to Athens and say, hey, wait on us there, and Timothy, they'll, they'll join him later. And so he gets to Athens, and here he is. He's waiting for them in Athens, and while he's there, again, I'm going to include Jesus in the everyday stuff of my life. I'm in Athens. I'm going to look around, and through the lens of the gospel, I want to start evaluating where I'm at and what I need to do. And so while he's there, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of many idols. Uh, This time, Greece had been conquered by Rome. It was not the military power that it had always been. It became an intellectual power. And so Rome had come in and conquered, and he finds himself here. And with the intellectual prowess and the intellectual uh, 
evolution that was taking place there, all of a sudden these idols start showing up. In fact, many scholars say that there were more idols in Athens than there were people. And an idol, let me be clear, in that day was usually made out of wood, and oftentimes it would be covered in some sort of a metal or gems or something to make it really special and nice. And an idol, by definition, is something that requires your allegiance and worship over and above God. In our culture, we don't make wooden statues of them. Not all the time. Some people do. But we don't make wooden statues and worship a wooden statue the way that they would have in this culture. For us, it comes in the form of greed and money and sex and acceptance and all these other things that we place above God. So understand, for them, it was a physical item. And he said they were just everywhere. It was all over the place. And when the Bible says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him, it was stirred within him, the same concept is there that's in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, hey, Christian, follower of Jesus, be angry. You're allowed to be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Big difference. And what it's saying is this. When things in the world are not the way that they were supposed to be, that should make us angry. Man, I'm angry that God had this plan. I'm so angry that people have to endure this. He says, but what you do with your anger, how you respond to your anger, that's what's going to determine whether or not you're sinning and what your motivation for the anger is. And so that's what happens. Paul's spirit is provoked. He's angry. Why all these idols? Ah, But we begin to see that his motivation is pure because we see what he does with that idolatry. I was in India two years ago visiting one of our missionaries. And we got to travel through India, and it was really a wonderful trip. We got to teach in the Bible college and, and go to these village churches. And really, the, the work that New Hope supports there, man, disciples making disciples. It's happening in India. But one of the things that overwhelmed me on the trip, other than being nicknamed Spice Jet because of my weak, sum- my, my, my weak stomach and my inability to eat their food. And I lived off Coca-Cola and bread. It was, it was rough. But <laughs> one of the things that overwhelmed me about the culture in India was the idolatry. There were idols for everything, and they were everywhere. I'd never seen anything like it. So many idols that you begin to feel it. Like, oh, this is just intense. And I imagine that's even magnified more for Paul here, and it just stirs his spirit. So what does he do when he has that provoking of his spirit Verse 17, so he, instead of just getting angry, like we do, don't lie, we get angry, what do we do? Boy, I'm going to put this on Facebook. And we get, <laughs> and we do our Facebook rant, and oh, I'm so angry at these people, and I turn or burn, blah, blah, And we just, right, ah, I did something. No, you didn't. You wrote about it. It's not doing anything. Paul says, I can't just sit back and be angry. I have to do something about it. So it says in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Now, you're like, well, Rob, I can reason on Facebook as I go into the comment section and we just go back and forth. I'm like, how many people do you know after reading your comment section on Facebook said, what must I do to be saved? It doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't happen in our social media endeavors, okay? Paul goes to people and Paul begins to reason with people, with the Jews and the devout persons. Then he goes to the marketplace and every, every day he would go to the marketplace with anyone who happened to be there, he would reason. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also joined the conversation with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Again, Paul doesn't just sit there and stew in his anger and get frustrated. He says, I have to do something about this. If the Spirit has provoked me, I have to respond. I can't just sit and be mad. I'm going to go reason with these people. Now, here's what's fascinating. The word reason... The word reason right there, really good translation of that word. That's what it meant. He went and reasoned with them. It requires listening. It requires understanding where they're coming from. He didn't just come and bash them on the head with the truth. He entered their culture, began to study their language, study what they were doing, and he engaged them with the gospel. Many people believe that his way of reasoning would have been very, um, uh, very similar to just uh, asking questions like a you know, good 
a frustrating teacher maybe for you. They would have, Socrates would do this, the Socratic method, where you are asked a question, what do you do with it? You answer with a question, and then your student, if they're young, wants to wring your neck because I just want the answer, right? I love that style of teaching because I get to teach, and I love doing it to young people because it drives them nuts. You can't wring my neck. You're just going to listen. So we would, we'll go back and forth. Paul would do this. He's asked a question and responds with a question. Here's why I love it. Because it teaches you how to learn. It doesn't just give you information. As you're being asked, you're taking ownership of everything that you learn as you learn it. This is what Paul was doing. And he did it in the synagogues first because Paul spoke their language immediately. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I can go into the synagogue, speak their language, and engage them immediately. But it says he also went to the marketplace. And when you think of marketplace, you probably think of like a street with a bunch of vegetables and fruit being sold, and you would just go buy what you need and go. Marketplace is not like that in the ancient world. Uh, This is before Twitter, believe it or not, young people, uh, and newspapers. And there was no way to get news out. So the marketplace was actually the media center of the culture. If you wanted to know anything about anything, you would go there. It was the art center because people that practiced art, they actually did art and sold art right there in the marketplace. It was the business center, the finance center, because if you owned a business or you were engaged in business, you went to the marketplace to strike deals and and to make financial um, uh, interactions with different people. The marketplace was the center of the culture. And it says Paul intentionally went into the marketplace and he began to reason and engage people with the gospel, all while just waiting for people to show up. Think about that. He could have just waited. But no, it says while he's waiting for them, he's still living on mission. And he goes into this place and engages them with the truth of Jesus. So much so that now the Epicureans, those are the people that say, uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You, YOLO, all right, modern day, YOLO, you only live once. You remember that? Came and went real fast, didn't it? You, you only live one time, do whatever you want, live this life. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics are more of the people that, they also come out, the Stoics come out, and they're the ones that are like, show no emotion, you are a robot, and everything must. It's just two different they all come with their philosophies, and they're just intrigued by this message Paul's preaching, intrigued by the way he's engaging them, and they want to know more, and so they pull him in, and they, they're intrigued because he's preaching Jesus. Verse 19, they keep going, so they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, and they said to him, may we know what, is new, what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who had lived, lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of new things. So they just sat around. This is the intellectual capital of the world at the time. So Paul, standing in, in the midst of the Areopagus, in front of all of these intellectual elite people, he said this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Okay, I want to pause there real quick before we do. Just notice, he perceived before he ever presented, he perceived. Keep that in mind. Write that down. That's, that's good. He perceived before he presented. He paid attention, not just to what they needed to hear. He knew what they needed to hear, but how they needed to hear it. Keep that in mind. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. As I was looking, paying attention, I found an angle. That's what he's saying. I found my angle. This is the angle I'm taking in presenting the gospel to you. There was an inscription. It said, to the unknown God. What therefore your, you worship is unknown, I'm about to tell you about. That's what he says. What you worship is unknown, I'm about to tell you. He says, may we know this teaching. They're so intrigued that they bring him to the Areopagus. Now, if you were to go to Athens today, you would see the Acropolis, even to this day. 
Because in Athens, at any place in the entire city in Athens, you can see the Acropolis because it's the highest point in the city. There's other hills near the Acropolis, and one of the other peaks that's a little bit lower than the Acropolis would be the, um, the Areopagus, which you would say uh, it's translated uh, Ares Hill. Or the Romans, when they conquered, they translated it and called it Mars Hill. So if you read in your Bible, Mars Hill, this is what it's referring to. Here's Mars Hill. To this day, you can see where Paul was brought. That's where he was brought. Why was he brought there? That's like the Ivy League. If you took every one of our Ivy Leagues and you brought them all together and you put them in this room, this is what the Areopagus would have been like. You put them all in the room and then Paul stands up and says, hey, I've been paying attention to the way you guys learn and what you study and what you've been doing and and so I want to present this to you. But understand that he paid attention first. He learned what was known to them. He paid attention to what they needed to hear, not just that they needed to hear the truth, but how they needed to hear it as well. They spent their time doing nothing but learning new things. So that's all these people did. If you wanted to know anything, if you wanted to be an intellectually known person, this is where you went to learn. And Paul's here presenting the gospel. How did he even get the audience? Just think about this. Didn't start big. He didn't come to town being well-known. He showed up, started looking around, He was receptive to the Holy Spirit working in his life. Started noticing some things that didn't line up with the scriptures, didn't line up with what he knew to be true. But what he did know to be true is that I'm supposed to be a missionary everywhere I go. Everywhere I go. I need to involve Jesus in the everyday stuff of my life. And so now I'm in this place and I'm noticing these things. And well, you know what? I'm going to start talking to these people. And he starts talking. Hey, tell me about this. What's going on? Tell me about Oh, okay. And they begin to engage. And all of a sudden, it starts to spread because that's what the gospel does bigger and more powerful than Paul could have done just on his own. God begins to work. We got to hear more about this. They bring him, and now he's in front of this incredible audience, and he's sharing. And the angle he takes is, you have this thing, this unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. Now, two ways to interpret unknown God. The first one is this, that these people and all of their idolatry, they said, hey, we, we might forget one. And so we might as well go ahead and just say, hey, just in case we forgot, let's put it here. And we'll say, that's the unknown one, just in case, right? We, wanna, we don't want to make anybody mad. There's all kinds of things that you can forget. We might overlook it. And just to cover our, ourselves, let's go ahead and we're just going to call it, there's the, t- there's the unknown God. Whew, we're covered. We can do whatever we want. But just in case that one gets upset, we're going to be covered. And that's what they do. They, they cover themselves. Or the second way that you can interpret that is, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Ecclesiastes, they all kind of give us this indicator that God has made himself known in this world. And as you live in this world and as you engage in this world, it's hard to to not notice that there's a creator. And so you have it within you the ability to notice, man, there's something here. And you feel it when you know something's right and something's ah, there's a difference between right and wrong. And I know the difference between right and wrong. I just can't figure out why and I can't figure out what. And so this unknown God is like, we know he's there, but we just don't know about him. Either way, whether it's they were covering their, their own tails or because they really felt that there was this bigger giant God who's above all these other idols out there, but we don't know about him, and so we'll just do this. Either way, Paul comes in and he says, I'm going to engage you with that. And he begins to tell them and, and tell them about what that unknown God was. Again, looks at the skeptical culture, engages them. Here's what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So ding, right away. That's... That hurt. Everything you do, you made. Everything you worship was made by you. But the God who created everything, he doesn't need that. He's not served by human hands as though he is in need of anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything from you. It's the reverse, guys. You need something from him. Verse 26, and he made 
from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. So again, God doesn't, he's not in the business of making every decision for you. He, he, he created boundaries, and he says when you live within those boundaries, he makes himself evident to you. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move, move and have our being. As even some of your own poets, again, he's speaking their language. He's speaking their language. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. If we're his offspring, how can we create him? He created us. An image formed by people everywhere, uh, everywhere to repent. Because he is, or the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Man, he says a lot. So I'm going to summarize it this way. He essentially looks at them and says this, your idea of God and all of your intellectual elitism is too limited because you've limited your idea of God to something you've created. God's bigger than anything you created. You've limited your God, is what he's saying to them, to something that you do something for when in fact you are in dire need of what he can do for you. He says, let me tell you the truth of the gospel. The gospel is this. God did in a moment where you were powerless to do for yourself what only he could do for you in Jesus. He sent Jesus to die, to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you couldn't die, and then resurrect him from the dead to do what you couldn't do and were powerless to do for yourself, reuniting you to your heavenly father. That's what Jesus did. But he didn't shy away from the truth, Paul, when he was presenting this. I love this. He didn't just say, and so let's just sit around and sing songs together. No, he said, I'm going to tell you why this is so important for you in your intellectual elitism and your pursuit of intellectualism. Let me tell you why this is extremely important. And he says in verse 30 that there's coming a day when God, being just and perfect, is going to judge the world, and he gave the ability to judge the world to the Son, to the one person who earned the right to bring that judgment, and don't make a mistake in thinking he's not bringing it. He's bringing the judgment, but you don't have to endure the judgment if you're in Christ. Let me say it for you this way. I'll put it on the screen for you. Essentially, Paul says, hey, there's, there's a day of judgment coming, and the only one who has the power to judge is the one who conquered death. That is truth. At the same time, the only one who can rescue us from this judgment is the one who loved us enough to die for us. That is grace. And all at once, Paul's presenting this to them. Truth, you will be judged outside of Christ. Grace, you don't have to be if you're in Christ. Truth and grace. And so the response is in verse 32. Now when they heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some of them began to mock him. While others said, hold on, I'm a little intrigued by this. I want to hear more about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of them joined him. And they believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman, and also a woman named Damaris who was with them. So some of them responded and some of them didn't. Paul got some of the results he was going for and some of the others. Here's a couple things that I want you to know about this. We're not judged based on our success, but on our faithfulness. We'll get to that here in just a minute. Paul knew that, and so Paul enters into this place, and he decides, I'm going to be faithful. And those who make the res- those who hear the presentation, some of them begin to mock him. And here's why I think they mock him. A lot of the time, I think it's because why people mock us. I don't think it's because they didn't believe it was true. This is just Rob. I can't prove this. So you're like, then I don't believe you. That's fine. But I'm up here. All right? So he, he looked, I don't think they rejected him because they didn't believe him. I think for many of them, they did believe him, but they knew what that meant. I mean, we have to give up all these idols. They knew that if I believe what you're saying, that means that everything I've been putting my energy and time into is now gone. And there is one over all of it. And it's very humbling 
and it was a cost they weren't willing to pay. And so they, instead they mock him and they push back and say, no, 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 no. Maybe some really didn't believe it was true, and I think maybe they didn't because of the resurrection. Ah, resurrection, you're lost, I'm done. I think others, they just, I don't want to, uh-uh. But what I love about Paul is he didn't assume their response. And I think for many of us, the reason we don't want to go to people that we think are just intelligent and smart, oh, they're just so smart, I don't want to share the gospel. I know how they're going to respond. Do you? Paul didn't look at the Areopagus and say, man, those are so smart. I'm here in Athens. I figured out. I learned that they're very intelligent. No, I'm not doing it. Paul said, no, I'm going to do this. And whatever God does with it, he'll do with it. But my goal is to engage Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And so that's a part of it. Let's go. And he was faithful in sharing the gospel. So there's some th- a lot of things you can learn from this passage. I want to share four things with you um, as we um, look at what happened when the gospel prevailed over intellectual opposition. Four things that you can take, and honestly, from this passage, I think that we can take and adopt to our own lives. So if you're taking notes, if not, pull out your phone, take a picture of the screen, whatever you got to do. I think this is important. Here's what he says. First, first truth I learned from Acts 17 is this. Making disciples requires gospel intentionality. Paul did not assume. He did not assume what their response would be. He was just intentional. And if we're going to go make disciples in our neighborhoods, the subdivisions that we live in, the circles that we run around in, the friendships that we have, our families. If we're going to make disciples, we must be intentional with the gospel. We have to be. And for you, that might be, you know what, we're just going to have people over for dinner, and we're going to start doing this. And it may not be perfect, and hey, our house isn't always going to be spotless, but that's real life, and don't act like it's not. It's real life for everybody, right? As soon as they leave, right? And then they're coming over, and then you fight and angry, fight and angry, fight and angry. They ring the doorbell, hey, it's always been clean. Come on in. And you have dinner, right? (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But... Maybe for you, it's, we're going to be gospel intentionality. We're going to display gospel intentionality by opening our doors and having meals. My wife has been doing this excellent job. Uh, she, our, house, our backyard has become the neighborhood hub for all the young kids. And so like, I'll come home from work, and it's like, here we go. <laughs> They're in the backyard, and you've got 100 kids running around, jumping on a trampoline and having fun and playing. It's just being intentional. It's nothing special. It's just we're here, and we want to involve Jesus in the everyday stuff of our life. And if we're going to do that, here's what it's going to look like for us. You've got to determine what it is, but you can't shy away from it because you're scared. Jesus has called you to go, and he's put you in an environment he's not put me in to make a difference that he's not called me to make. And you've got to make that difference by being intentional. Second truth is this that I learned. Truth is not only about the what, but also about the how. Here's what happened to me. I first became a Christian. I got so fired up, man. I wanted to tell the whole world. And I got so excited. And, and so uh, I focused on the what. Here's what people need to hear. And you've heard a little bit about my, if you've been here for a while, my childhood. I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. And so when I go back into the house, I was so focused on the what that I lost sight of the how. And here's what I mean by that. I got so focused on truth that I lost sight of people. And so I walked into my house, and it was hellfire and brimstone. It was turn or burn. It really was. Like, yeah, you need this. I'm right. And I came at it, and they were all like, yeah, right. Uh-uh. And so for years, I would beat myself up because I wasn't making the progress I wanted to make with my family members. Man, I did. And by the grace of God, he taught me this valuable lesson in my life. He taught me this lesson. I didn't learn this on my own. God taught me. Let me, let me set it up for you this way. I, was, I preached a wedding last night. Uh, you're like, that's why he's scatterbrained today. Uh, <laughs> I preached a wedding late last night. It was an awesome wedding. Uh, the highlight for me that was cool, and I'm driving home, and I immediately start thinking about this, is uh, the, the groom and his mom doing this dance together. It was super creative, far more coordinated than I could be. And they're up there, and they're doing a lot of fun stuff, and it was just so engaging. And I get in my car, and I'm driving home, and it immediately hits me. Man, I didn't get to do that. 
Man, my mom died two months before my wedding. Oh, I wish I could have done that. But then in the same moment, the Holy Spirit, because of what I'm preaching, you just, no, Rob, don't you understand the beauty of this? That it was hellfire and brimstone for years and years and years and years until God softened my heart and said, it's not just about the truth, Rob, it's also about the grace. And when I began to engage people where people were at and speak their language, one year before she died, my mom became a Christian. That happens not because of me, because if it was me, it's hellfire and brimstone. And it doesn't happen because I ignored it and didn't engage her with the gospel. It happened because God taught me that it's grace and truth together that make a difference. So it's not just the what. I know you know the what. You could convince me that you know the what. You're intelligent and smart, but have you thought about the how? How are you going to engage that person with that what? Third truth. We're called to be faithful and not successful. God is not judging you based on your success. People are not a notch on your belt. Let me just say that. Stop treating con- conversions like there's some award you're getting. Start looking at people. Acts chapter 3, beautiful. All this great stuff happens to Peter and John. And in Acts 3, you see Peter walking. Peter just preached. Thousands responded. Peter walking. And who does he stop? Look right in the eye and pay attention to a beggar who'd been ignored for years. God wanted Peter to be faithful, not just successful. He'll take care of success. We take care of being faithful. The fourth one is I want to put up here in just a second. It's a question. And I know it's like a little confusing, but I'm going to ask you this question. I really want you to think about it. Here's the question. Based on Acts 17, what difference? I mean, really, what difference has Jesus made in your life? What difference has Jesus... I mean, Jesus made such a difference in Paul's life, he couldn't even wait for people to arrive without living the mission in Athens. What difference, real difference, has Jesus made in your life? I want you to hear the question the right way. I'm not asking you what difference you've made for him. I'm asking you what difference he's made for you. So often in our lives, the way we think about our lives and we're conditioned to think in America about our lives is we are who we are because of what we do, right? Let me illustrate for you this way. When you meet somebody for the first time, first question they ask, what's your name, right? What's the second question? What do you do? And immediately conclusions are brought on both ends you begin to present what you do in such a way that it gives you value about who you are. And the whole time they're determining who you are based on what you do. We're conditioned to determine our self-worth and our self-value based on what we do, not just on being who we are. The gospel, it mixes that up on us. That's why it gets so difficult, because in every other area, it's what we do determining who we are. With the gospel, it's who you are determining what you do. You see, before God ever called Paul to live on mission, God redeemed Paul. Before God ever asked Paul to go make a difference in the world, God declared him righteous because of Jesus. God always tells you who you are before he ever calls you to do what he wants you to do. And he's always in the business of continually shaping you into who he needs you to be in order to do what he needs you to do. You see, the Christian journey is a journey of being, not just doing. Not just doing. And so I want to close out today in a unique way. I want to read a scripture over you that I hope you'll read. I hope you'll listen to it and receive it as God telling you, you are worthy. God telling you that you are valuable. God telling you that you, you, individually, the gospel is looking directly at you, at your heart and your life and saying, you're worthy. I can use you to change the world. You're a friend of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. Jesus died for you, and he wants to use you to make a difference in this world. You're valuable. How do I know that? Because before he ever calls us to do something, he declares the truth about us. And Paul modeled this in all of his writings, particularly in 2 Corinthians 
the fifth chapter. I'm going to read this over you, and I want you to receive this. It's a little different, but I want you to think about it if you're in Christ. Here's the deal. If you're not in Christ, no apologies. You can't live this. And if you're not in Christ, I would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to become a Christian. So I'm going to read this, close in prayer, and then I'm going to come right over here and just sit over here. And if you want to know more about what it means to become a Christian so that this can be true about you, what I'm about to read, I'd love to talk to you. Would you stand with me as I read this truth? First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 17. Therefore, he's saying, therefore, we're speaking spiritually here. He's saying, therefore, this is true if you're in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So anything you've done in the past in Christ can be made new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, and then gave us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because God did this for you and declared this true over you in Jesus, therefore, you are an ambassador for Christ. God is making his appeal to a skeptical world through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God because of this truth for our sake, for you. God made him who knew no sin, who never sinned and did not deserve to die the death that he died. He made him to be sin so that in him, because of his resurrection, we might become the righteousness of God. 